0: This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and this session, Descent in Iran. Before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the Indigenous people of this area uh, we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and any members of the Gadigal people in the audience this afternoon. Uh, today, I'll be introducing our esteemed guest. We'll have an opportunity for questions, which I will moderate with a steely eye <laughs> and a determination to make sure that people ask questions rather than talk endlessly. Um, Don't laugh, it's serious. Uh, I I have just started reading this book and i had to stop at about, you know, 1am this morning. It's an extraordinary book. I'll talk a bit about Laura in a minute. Um, The book is called Children of Paradise, The Struggle for the Soul of Iran. Laura will be uh, signing many, many copies of this after this session. Uh, Laura Sakur first visited Iran in 2014, the last time she was... There was 2012, 2013, I'm not sure, one of those times. And it's been over that time she's been uh, visiting Iran, learning all about it, writing about it, and this is the the culmination of all that extraordinary intellectual and emotional work. Laura is a very um, well-regarded journalist. She's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, Foreign Affairs... Uh, she's worked for the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the American Prospect. She's been a fellow at the New York Public Library's Coleman Centre for Scholars and Writers. Uh, she's taught journalism in New York University and Princeton. You can tell she's a New Yorker. <laughs> um, and like I said, her book is absolutely essential reading, and I'd like to introduce Laura to speak now. Welcome, Laura.
1: Thank you so much, Rebecca, for that generous introduction, and thank you for being here. Um, I think it's safe to say that Americans have a sort of special place in our imagination for Iran. Um, In fact, an Australian colleague just last night said to me that he noticed when traveling in the United States that Americans seem to attach a degree of emotion to the discussion of Iran that was surprising to him. Um, I thought about that for a little bit because it occurs to me that my work started from that place, whether or not um, that was what it ultimately sought to explore. I was a child when the Iranian revolution happened and the hostage crisis, but I think that that moment um, was a sort of indelible one for Americans of my generation and older. It was a time when... um, You could call it a sort of loss of innocence. Um, The images that we saw were of angry mobs burning American flags, taking over an American embassy, and parading American diplomats blindfolded. This was something that, as a child, I could not really make head or tails of. But as I discovered when I traveled to Iran, I think for both Iranians and for Americans, that, that rift between these two countries that had previously been allies was like a like an ugly divorce. And for children at that time, I think we kind of channeled the emotions of that moment without really understanding what they were about. Um, So for most of my life, Iran was sort of a no-go zone. It was a place that Americans didn't or couldn't travel and a place that we um, maybe caricatured or or, um, imagined as being sort of dark and, and unknowable. And that, when I became a journalist, was something that interested me and that made me curious. By the late 1990s, when I became a journalist, I was also starting to see another kind of story about Iran in the American press. Um, many of you may remember this period, which was uh, coincided with the presidency of Mohammad Khatami. We started to see stories about this reformist Iranian president. And about this bulge of youth population in Iran that was yearning for connection with the West, that was um, taking to the streets in protests, that was uh, starting newspapers and writing for newspapers and taking up the field of journalism in a serious and critical way, and, um, and starting NGOs and getting involved in civic life in all kinds of ways that we hadn't really imagined taking place in that country. Um, So this transformation from revolutionary state to um, sort of opening and reform was an interesting one to me, not least because some of the main actors, there was at this point a political current within the Iranian political establishment that called itself reformist, that was trying to open up um, the state to a more democratic vision of of its purpose, some of these very people had been involved in the hostage crisis. Some of them were hostage-takers, and that was actually the political faction that moved from hardest line to um, a kind of liberalism. So this, this trajectory interested me, and I went to Iran for the first time in the fall of 2004, Um, in order to to see it and better understand it. And I think also at that time, this was not long after 9-11, when the United States started to sort of look outside itself, particularly toward the Middle East and the Muslim world, it was interesting to think about this Iranian reformist project in that context and to understand it as the first real um, Islamic revolution that was now attempting to reconcile some of its Islamic theories of the state with... um, an idea of the state that was more Republican. So I thought that I would be looking at that. But when I got there, I found that there had been yet another turn of the screw. It turned out by the fall of 2004, Khatami had been elected in 1997. By the fall of 2004, the people who had elected him, and who had supported him, and who had entered that civil society space with so much enthusiasm, a lot of them were angry and disappointed. They felt that the reformists had not delivered what they'd promised, and they wondered if there was a place for reform at all within the structures of the Islamic Republic. So the first presidential election I attended in Iran was the election of 2005, which brought us Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Um, And this was an election in which the reformists who were divided and angry. They ran three different candidates, they split their vote. There was an active movement to boycott the election altogether, so a lot of reformist voters stayed home. And it seemed like the reformist movement had collapsed of its own weight. In every way, you know, Iran, I guess one of the things that those of us who travel there always wind up saying all too often is, it's complicated. This is a country that sits astride a deep political and cultural fault line. I think of it sometimes like tectonic plates that are moving underneath the society, making it dynamic and volatile, and often throwing into relief a landscape of immense beauty and peril. That division runs through the political system as well as the society. There is a complex history of these last 30 to 40 years that runs, that's inscribed in the lives of nearly every Iranian I met. As I started listening to the life stories of Iranians, particularly in this period, and I should say, I think that we have in the United States at least, a very um, voluminous literature about the revolution itself, and about the fall of the Shah. This is a sort of a story, an arc of a story that that we know and understand if we pay attention to it. But the story of the Islamic Republic, the years, the decades after the Islamic Revolution, that have actually had a very lively and interesting political life, that story is less well-known to us. And one of the things that I set out to do in writing my book was to piece together that history um, as as a narrative, because it seemed to me that we would see these flashes on the news of things that happened that seemed to sit in isolation. But to understand the sequence of events as an arc and as one thing leading to another was something that we had to, to work to do in this context that was foreign and sometimes frustrating. But one of the ways that I set about doing that was to listen to the life stories of, of Iranians who I met both in Iran and outside. And as I listened to them, I found myself thinking of epic novels. I felt that there was a compressed history that was running through the lives of these people that was incredibly dramatic and, um, and too little known. I wanted to render their stories transparent, to make them intimate, to bring these experiences and events to a North American or an English-speaking audience as something vivid and lived and not exotic. I was struck by the power of ideas in this Iranian story since 1979. Abstract thought is very important in Iran. Philosophy and poetry are a kind of native discourse. The revolution was a revolution in ideas as much as in politics, And this intellectual culture really never stopped evolving. In the West, I think we've often thought of the Islamic revolution as a rejection of the West, um, specifically of the United States. But it's not as simple as that, and nor is it as simple as a revival of Islamic fundamentalism. The ideology of the revolution was not a pre-Enlightenment ideology, but one that was profoundly influenced by the Enlightenment and intention with it. I found that the role of Western thought and Western thinkers in this history was often surprising and serendipitous. You would have Iranian thinkers who would go and study in the West and bring back one philosopher who inspired them, and this philosopher would then be translated into Persian, and suddenly there would be a active and, um, and very consequential discussion about Hannah Arendt or, or Hobbes or whoever it might have been at that moment who was being transmitted. I was also surprised by the role of analytic philosophy and pragmatism under the Islamic Republic, but that's another long story. The political history in these years is far less tied to religion than you might imagine and more shaped by the prerogatives of power. This should be familiar from other utopian state projects and other autocratic regimes from which the Iranian one doesn't really stand so far apart after all. So in order to understand this history, I began with the revolutionary generation, with intellectuals who were to make the transition in their own lives from revolution to reform. And I was struck by the role of identity in the revolutionary story as I got these, mainly these men, to tell me about their engagement with the revolution itself. One of the people whose stories I tell is a man named Ali Reza, who. seemed to me to be to literally embody the cleavage in his society. He was somebody who, through um, the vagaries of his family history, had grown up poor and devout in a um, sort of down-at-heel part of South Shiraz, but who had cousins on the other side of his family who were highly educated and secular. Um, His story is really the story of how political Islam gave him a purchase on the radicalism of the day in the 70s, and allowed him to um, to see himself as as an engine of of history, as somebody who was making history instead of being shaped by it. Um, another person whose story I followed in those years was a guy named Mostafa Roxafat, who came into the revolutionary movement with the goal of defining a new literary and artistic voice that would be distinctly Iranian, because he felt that. Iranian literature drew too much on Russian literature; that Iranians read Russian literature at the exclusion of their own, and that um, the, per- the intellectual culture and the literary culture had been largely secular. He wanted to find a space for Islam in the literature that would be forward-looking and um, and exciting. So his story is actually quite an interesting one. He winds up starting um, what he calls an artistic army at the time of the revolution, people who he sends out to make films and draw up posters and to sort of set a, um, an aesthetic for the revolution. That organization gets co-opted by the state, so he turns and starts another organization, which is a journal of ideas, and that journal of ideas becomes ultimately the vector of um, ideas that are quite critical of the revolutionary state and become the germ of the reform movement. There's a philosopher who's very significant to this whole chain of events, named Abdul Karim Saroush who starts out as an acolyte of Ayatollah Khomeini and a student of Islamic philosophy, who then goes to England, studies philosophy of science, and eventually um, embraces a kind of liberalism. He, he comes up with a theory, a sort of theological theory, that um, becomes really crucial to allowing young Iranians in the 90s and later to distinguish between their religious commitments, and, their, and the political commitments that it may or may not entail. All of these people were trying to define the meaning of their own lives, but they were also earnestly contending with the deepest political and philosophical questions of their day. They were defining a new state into being. The founding decade of the Islamic Republic, from 79 to 89, was a bloody and violent one. Um, I won't go into all the the details of it here, but um, suffice to say that the faction that won this battle over control of the state at the very outset was the radical clerical faction that had the most theocratic vision of the state. The constitution that they produced was uh, sort of enshrined forever the ambiguities and compromises that... Um, had to be made in the revolutionary movement of that moment. And when I say that, what I mean is it includes, as I think most of us who follow Iran know, certain institutions that look familiar, like a presidency and a parliament and ministers appointed by an elected government. It also includes something unique to Iran called velayat-e faqih, which was the ultimately absolute rule of of a, well, absolute, I guess, is a debatable term, but the rule of of the um, supreme leader, who was a high-ranking cleric in the first instance, Ayatollah Khomeini, and below him, bodies of clerics who could veto, really, the work of the elected government. So this constitution is a document that has tensions embedded in it, and those tensions have defined the development of the state. There have been a number of times when the elected leaders have attempted to expand the realm of power that is accorded to representatives of the people and they find themselves in a tug of war with the theocratic institutions that sit above them and furthermore with a deeper security apparatus that's connected to those institutions and by that I mean the Revolutionary Guard, the Intelligence Ministry, uh, the Judiciary, some institutions that actually don't answer to the Republican government at all. So... By the end of this first decade, in order to establish and and kind of firm up this new theocratic state, um, there are political struggles. There are a number of political forces who get completely either decimated or expelled. The secular left is decimated. There are parts of the revolutionary Islamist movement that are cast forever beyond the pale. Um, And then even within the ruling party, which is the radical clerics, even within that party, there start to be divisions. This also is an endlessly repeated story in Iran. They keep narrowing the political space, and even as they narrow it, it produces more division inside. So that narrowed spectrum had inner conflicts, and one part of that, of that ruling party gets cast out by 1989. These were people who were Hardline Islamists, this was actually the faction that gave us the hostage crisis. They are cast out of power in 1989, and they have a lot of time to think. They start rethinking the state, theoretically and also personally. What was it they had done? A lot of them went back to school. They studied sociology and political theory, they rethought the state and even religion they came up with these reform, with reformist ideas, ideas about democratic development, some of which also may have come out of the experience that Eastern Europe was going through at around the same time. And they set about putting these ideas into practice. They put forward a candidate in 1997, that was Mohammad Khatami, and, um, and a number of these theoreticians and really abstract thinkers were brought into the ministries and made this big effort to produce... Um, a sort of a more democratic state within the structure of the Islamic Republic. These were insiders. This was a faction within the establishment. They were not in the opposition. They believed they would be tolerated because they had been on the inside from the beginning. But what they found was their project hit just enormous roadblocks almost from the start. So here I've turned, and in a way this was the ultimate source of my interest, to a second generation of Iranians. These were people who were born at the time of the revolution or after the revolution and who believed powerfully in the ideas of the reformists when they came onto the scene in 1997. The reformists talked a lot about something they called civil society, which sounds to us like a lot of jargon, but was, um, but was a thrilling idea in its time in that place. These young people believed that a space was being opened before them and they believed that they could seize it and, um, and come in to the civic life of their country in a constructive way. The civic energy in this country, uh, Iran, um, is something that has never ceased to just to amaze me. Because whatever the costs, you find again and again people who come in and who believe that they have a duty and and a right to shape the future of their country. These young people train as journalists, they become activists, they start NGOs that that take responsibility for all kinds of social ills, for the environment, for... um, for all kinds of things that they feel the government has left open space for. And they think that they will have the protection of their president. But it turns out that the experience of the Khatami years was bitter for many of them. The reformists just didn't wield enough power to protect them from the hardline judiciary or the security apparatus. A lot of these young people became casualties of this confrontation inside the state. They, a lot of them faced prison terms, they were treated very badly in prison, one of the stories that I follow in great detail in my book is a story of three young independent journalists who were covering, really, the human rights abuses of the deep state, and they really got drawn to its bosom. The system worked to destroy them both inside and outside of prison, and this story, to me, seemed to reveal so many of the intricacies of the system that they, were, that they came up in. So Khatami and his political coterie were stymied, and we had the Ahmadinejad years, probably... Uh, most of you were aware of the green movement that burst forth in uh, in nineteen in two thousand and nine This was at the time that Ahmadinejad was up for re-election and he was running against a candidate named Mir Hossein Mousavi who was a, actually he was the first prime minister in the 80s and a real example of the um, amazing shift that these people made because he had been sort of a hardline prime minister, a favorite of Khomeini's, and now he comes forward as this vehicle for all the reformists and liberalizing hopes of the younger generation. Um, And when that election was called for Ahmadinejad, there was an enormous protest movement in the streets of Iranian cities, and it was put down with tremendous violence. my contention, both in the book and elsewhere, has been that although we in the West have often talked about 2009 as a sort of spontaneous outpouring of of anger or a response to a particular election or a uh, Twitter-generated revolution, it was in fact something quite predictable for those of us who have been spending time following the fortunes of the Reform Movement in Iran. It came out of um, it came out of that movement, which had pretty deep roots, including intellectual roots. It had politicians, people who were um, who were quite knowledgeable in how to organize that population. It was not a flash in the pan; it was something that arose from uh, from real social forces in Iranian society and when it was put down, what was put down was not a flash in the pan; it was something much deeper and broader and much sadder um, by the end of the of that summer a number of the leaders of the reform movement, some of the same theorists who had been working since the 90s to develop these ideas about about democratization, were brought up um, on conspiracy charges, and some of them even, if you ever doubt the power of ideas in this story, Um, One of them was forced to to renounce Max Baber on camera. Um, (laughs) There were a number of these show trials and forced confessions that really were taking straight aim at the the ideas and the discourse of this reform movement and identifying it as, in some way, um, an alien conspiracy. Um, I don't want to go on too much longer, but I will say in in, in that piece of my book, The person whose story I follow from about 2005 to the present, um, or until she was forced to leave Iran, really, in 2009, I should say, um, was a woman, a really kind of remarkable woman named Asya Amini. Um, And she, to me, embodies the the resistance that carried on after the reform movement. She was a middle-class woman who was extremely ambitious. She came from a family that supported her ambitions. She wanted to be a poet or an artist. She wound up moving to Tehran and becoming a newspaper editor. And her trajectory, I think, for a lot of of Western women will not sound unfamiliar. She... um, She... Wanted to be an editor and a writer. She was extremely enterprising. She took every assignment she was um, she was offered, and everything that she could. Anytime anything exciting was happening in her region, she was she was there, and she wound up getting um, really plum assignments in the sense that she was running sections of newspapers as a young single woman, which was not something that ordinarily happened at that time and place. And she was proud of herself. She also knew that there were people who didn't like to see a young woman in that role or didn't like to answer to her, but she, was, she never seemed to have a sense that her life would be limited. Um, and then something kind of caught her, her attention as a journalist that never let her go. It was the story of a young woman who had been, at the age of 16, sentenced to execution for crimes against chastity. What this meant, and she went up to this woman's hometown and researched the case, this young woman um, had been, she was an orphan, she was neglected, she didn't have much of a a family life or any money, she had been raped and then um, the rapist had paid her for her silence. And then he continued to come to her and to pay her for her silence. So this, um, she was, you can be, Crimes Against Chastity essentially is, um, I guess you could say it's the umbrella for prostitution and um, young, young girls who are seen as a threat to the social order because of their um, sexual activity. So she, you can be brought up on Crimes Against Chastity three times. The first two times, it's lashings. The third time, it's execution. This young woman had been executed on such charges. She was 16 years old. Asya couldn't get her out of her mind. She felt that this young woman lived in an Iran that she had never known, that Asya in her sort of middle-class urban world had not understood that there were such laws um, or that they were enforced. And she became really possessed by the story of... Juvenile execution in Iran, which is a serious um, and continuing issue there. And she she would start. She felt that she'd gotten to this young woman's story too late, and she wouldn't let that happen again. So she started to um, to research other similar cases and to try to intervene in them. And one case, she actually got a judge to agree to release a young woman into her care, and she kind of rehabilitated that woman in Tehran herself. and this kind of mutated into other related fields and I'll just kind of end with the with her story because it, to me, became um, really emblematic of the challenges still facing Iranian activists. She became interested in the issue of stoning, which is the sort of traditional Islamic punishment for adultery. Um, the head of the judiciary in Iran had declared a moratorium on stoning. He said, this is not a sentence that we will continue to carry out. But she found that it was still happening, and it was still happening mainly in the provinces. And she set about proving that these judges were defying the moratorium and that they were carrying out stoning sentences. She, was, she would go to the sites of the stonings and collect evidence, collect the bloodied stones, find witnesses. And she started to interview the judges. And what she found was that, well, there is in fact an ambiguity in the Constitution and in the penal code of Iran that says in one place that judges must base their decisions on statutory law and in another place that if there's no relevant statutory law they can rely on scripture and relevant fatwas. So there were some particularly hardline judges who were taking the law into their own hands in a sense and saying we don't have to listen to the head of the judiciary, Uh, we're answerable only to to the interpretation of religion that we prefer. So this was what she she found herself by the end of her work, kind of up against really the most um, intransigent of hardline forces in Iran, and that is the judiciary. So I kind of I ended my inquiry with her because, for a few reasons, one because the reform movement, which was tied to this political faction in power, had um, had seemingly cashed out by the Ahmadinejad years, and the women's movement carried a torch that was. Um, Significantly different in the sense that they weren't tied to anybody in power. This was a movement that was taking on some of the hardest nuts in the Iranian system and was doing it entirely from outside without any expectation of protection. Um, So I guess just in in closing I just wanted to to say that um, in sort of tracing the story of the struggle of the Iranian resistance I've found that that story, in my country at least, is often politicized. We talk about Iran really in a foreign policy framework, um, and in that framework people think too much about whether it's dangerous to talk about the human rights record in Iran because maybe that will lead people to think that the state is incorrigible and you shouldn't deal with them diplomatically, or whether um, one can talk about whether one can speak honestly about the nature of the state and still favor diplomatic engagement. In a way, I've tried to sort of to move the discussion out of that frame and to look on its own terms at a history that I think is tremendously dignified. Um, I think that the story of the Iranian reform movement it's a, is a proud, if tragic, chapter not only of Iranian but of human history. And it speaks to some of the most elemental politics all civilizations face and to the sort of never-ending struggle, at least in that country, between tyranny and the human spirit. Um, And I guess I'll stop there and open to questions.
2: Hi. um, I was wondering, when you talked about the radical Islam in how it's played a role in Iran, I'm I'm a Sunni Muslim, and irani iranians follow a much more strict interpretation shia shiite islam how do you in your opinion does that have any bearing on how they view islamic theology how they view certain rules such as for example stoning for us sunnis Mm -hmm. we it's not something we particularly say oh this is fine but i understand in the shiite sect it's something which is very much like yes this is a this is the radical interpretation. So what role do you think that plays in the ide- Islamic ideology which they perpetuate to follow within the government, within mm-hmm. their everyday life?
1: I don't know if it's fair to say that Shi'ism is by its nature stricter than Sunnism. I think it really depends what um, what Sunnism one follows. I think there are, um, there are certainly varieties. I hadn't uh, known of stoning as being solely a Shiite practice? Not
2: solely, but um, something which is more... Uh, it's something that, that, at least from what we've seen, or at times we've seen, is something which is more... It's all right. It's a practice. It's, it's fine. It, it, what would what, what my understanding has been, at least?
1: I think the major difference that you see with Iran is that you have a theocratic state where this is the law of the land and not... Um, I know that in some in some countries stoning takes place almost as a it's a almost community it's it's almost like a community action it's not legislated in that way of course in Iran they've legislated against it but are still carrying it out in some parts I think um, what you do see the structure of, the structure of the government is clearly something that would emerge much more naturally out of Shiism than out of Sunnism because of the hierarchical nature. Of authority in Shiite Islam, um, but whether the Islam itself is stricter than any other version, I don't. I don't think there's really um, grounds to say.
0: Thank you for your question. Uh, the next gentleman at number two, and then we'll go up to number one
3: in a sec. Uh, hello, my name's Andrew. I'd beg to differ with the previous questioner regarding um, the fanaticism of Sunni or Shiite, um, there is a concept in Islam called the which is basically creative reasoning. So we saw many contemporary and modern interpretations of relevant questions to modern society, which Iran addressed, such as birth control and so forth. Um, what What is the American opinion or the contemporary modern American opinion of Islamic role in revolution, taking into consideration that Islam has, is, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, being seen as a anti-colonial movement, and I tend to also see an American negation of the overthrow of the democratically re- elected government. So
0: could you just refine your question? You want to okay. know the modern American view on...
3: On Islamic revolution, in regards to the overthrow of the Islamic, oh, sorry, in in regards to the overthrow of the democra- democratically erected regime of Mossadegh back in '53, we don't see a whole lot of concentration upon that. Okay. Lord, do you feel you
0: can answer that question?
1: I think we have a number of things that are kind of being conflated here, and I'm not sure exactly how to answer. I, first, I can't speak to the general American opinion on really anything. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's we've a big been country. You want me to speak to the overthrow of Mossadegh? Yeah,
0: um, well, Maybe address what part of the question you feel you can address.
1: I think that there's a commonly accepted narrative, including in America, that the overthrow of Mossadegh was a critical mistake that the United States made in its dealings with Iran. Um, and I think, I, I think it was, it was um, the Clinton administration that made a formal apology for that. I know that's um, ultimately not had tremendous consequence in the world. Um, <laughs> I think though in a way you know, yes I think we can all we can all recognize that this was a historic mistake on the part of the United States and certainly um, led to a perception in Iran of the United States as being on the side of the forces of repression under the Shah um, ultimately, whether this was the definitive event in bringing about the Islamic Revolution, I think that there are a lot more variables than that including some you named yourself um, which you know at that at that time in the 70s the um, there were so many different streams feeding the revolutionary movement, some of them anti-colonial, some of them um, coming from the secular left, some of them coming from um, sort of almost an identity movement, as I see it, and, and from various other streams as well. So I wouldn't simplify it to, a sim- to you know, the consequence of
0: 1953. Up at number one. Thank you for your question. Number one. Whoops. Um. Please
3: don't fall over. Hello? (laughs) We can hear you? Yeah.
0: Okay, yeah.
3: Talk to the mic. Into the mic. Oh, yeah?
4: Oh, yeah. Okay, now it works. (laughs) Sorry. Um, From your own personal experience, uh, when you were in Iran um, and met and experienced or heard stories about people who were, like, young students and in the education system, especially after the revolution... uh, what kind of discoveries did you make facing towards their um, like revolution in kind of sense, or like um, disagreeing with the fundamentalism? And what kind of um, groups or activities could you discover in that special time
1: among students? Yes. Yeah, uh, when I started going there in 2004, 2005, um, you could pretty much say that among the oppositional student groups. There was a current that was uh, more sort of secular left. There was a current that was liberal. Um, and there was a current that was more in line with the reformist ideology, though the, that and the, and the liberals are kind of um, not that far apart. So um, I think, you know, a lot of what I've traced in the book is this sort of intellectual history of, of reformism within the Iranian political um, elite. And by the time I started, when I, in the 90s, that was, that was enormously influential on the student population. They were reading these philosophers who were essentially trying to, um, trying to reconcile a more democratic vision of the state. Um, but by the 2000s, the student movement had taken a slightly more secular cast. I can't speak to it today. I haven't been back since 2012, um, But my sense is that the students have always been a little bit more radical than the population at large.
0: What kind of activities in terms of dissent was it, um, you know, what kinds of things were they involved in, in terms of political activities, these student movements?
1: In the 90s, there was a very active student movement that was first involved... First, they were kind of part of the reformist movement. So they helped get reformists elected at every level. They were active campaigners for Khatami, for the parliament, for city councils, which, by the way, the reformists opened up the first ever local elections in Iran. Um, So they were kind of a part of that machinery. And then something happened in 1999 where... um, Students who were demonstrating against the closure of a newspaper were brutalized by the security forces, and they felt that Khatami and the reformists were much too reticent about coming out and standing up on their behalf. So they started to break with the reformists, and there's actually, I kind of dealt with this in my book through the story of one of the student leaders who found himself kind of sandwiched between these pressures. On the one hand, they had always worked with the reformists. They saw them as their... um, as really their patrons in government in a sense and on the other hand the students who were out in the streets were getting much more radical and asking for much more um, dramatic gains in democratization. So I think um, that big demonstration in 1999 was put down and um, and there was a period of relative, um, relatively less activism on student campuses. but. Um, really under Ahmadinejad that became more severe because he actually started expelling students for activism.
0: Thank you for your question. Uh, Down on the floor at number
4: two. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, I know you said that you didn't want to um, frame this as a diplomatic engagement debate, but if I may take it back Mm -hmm. there just briefly. Um, Given the rise of illiberal democracies and the importance of economic growth to autocratic regimes and their social contract, Uh, Do you believe that the coming economic uh, liberalisation of Iran will will result in a resurgence of reformist ideas or rather are we in danger of entering a period of sunshine policy towards Iran which would possibly harden the Mm. regime? Interesting
1: question. That's an interesting question. I think, first of all, I wouldn't assume that we're facing a coming liberalisation of the Iranian economy. I think... um, I think there's still a fairly uh, pitched battle over the direction of the Iranian economy. And the economy, you know, it's, a, it's a mixed economy. There is a fair degree of state um, control, but there's also. A sector of it that has been increasingly moving into the hands of the revolutionary guard um, and has always there's also always been these sort of giant foundations that are tied to the ruling clerics that control large parts of the economy. I don't see these interests budging um, anytime soon. so although we might see an opening to foreign investment and um, and some you know more ties to to the global economy in that sense. I don't know how soon the forces that currently um, are holding stakes in that system are going to be releasing them. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in that question too, by the way, because I think for sure there's um, there's a political stake in maintaining the arrangements as they are. Um, and there's, I think, long been a fear on the part of the ruling elites that, um, that greater economic openness would ultimately lead, um, if not toward, deeper ties with the West, just toward the empowerment of the Iranian middle class in a way that is uncomfortable for the, for the powers that be.
0: Just out of interest, or does Iran have any kind of big resource, deposits, or what, what's its...? Um, oil. Oil. Oh, yeah. And o- gas. Oil? Yeah. <laughs> oil and
1: gas. Any yeah. other industry? Um, well, it, its economy is highly dependent on um. oil and gas. So that's, that's another issue. It's a country that, especially under Ahmadinejad, they, um, they've done a lot of importing that has deluged some of the local industries. And um, yeah, it's, that's where it stands.
0: And the opening of, well, you, you put the opening in, in inverted commas of Iran to foreign investment, what has that been primarily also in oil and gas or other things?
1: It hasn't really happened yet. yet. Um, The sanctions have ostensibly been lifted, but there's still a battery of sanctions that are U.S. (laughs) sanctions alone that are not um, slated to be lifted. And there's also just still a lot of anxiety around doing business with Iran because what sanctions remain in place are very complex and it's very easy to run afoul of them without knowing it. So there's been a lot of. of nervousness and, and anger around that too. By the way, the Iranians feel that it's uh, that the Americans have not been giving people confidence that they can invest in Iran. Um, so, w- yes, really, the uh, it's the energy sector that is most that would be most in need of foreign investment.
0: Uh, up upstairs to number one.
4: Thank you for your time. You mentioned earlier um, the impact of analytic philosophy. Um, I know you said that was a longer conversation, but I was wondering if you might be able to elaborate briefly on what you think the impact has been there. Thank you.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, one of the interesting things that happens in the 90s is this sudden turn toward analytic philosophy, which hadn't really been taught in Iranian universities for some time. There's, I think, uh, like one scholar of Bertrand Russell. <laughs> and um, and then sometime in the early 90s, really, I think, owing to Abdul Karim Saroush who's the philosopher I mentioned earlier, who goes off to England, studies analytic philosophy and he studies actually philosophy of science. And he comes back and imports some um, philosophers of interest to him. And it became something that... um, There was a journal at that time called Kian, which was largely devoted to Soroush's thought. It was a philosophy journal that had a circulation that that would surprise most of us, at least in America. Um, And that started translating and publishing... Um, Anglo-American analytic philosophy and from what I understood from Iranians the appeal of it was that the continental tradition is so explicitly tied to European history the analytic tradition sort of offered a slightly more um, a slightly more transferable <laughs> vocabulary and um, and also one that was a little bit less uh, less overtly political which can be helpful in a situation um, of repression. So um, Karl Popper became a fad in Iran in the early 90s. <laughs> um, there were three translations that came out around the same time. Um, but Saroosh was also drawing on Quine, who suddenly became red. And, um, and there were a number of others, of others, too. So this was sort of a, a strange... Um, find for me. Richard Rorty, American pragmatist, I remember hearing, I don't know if this is true to be honest, but I remember hearing that he came to Iran to deliver a lecture and was just greeted by crowds and had never seen an audience like that in his life. Of course, in 2009 when they brought up the Green Movement on uh, sedition charges, they named Rorty as a CIA conspirator. So.
0: What parts of Max Weber were required to be <laughs> <laughs> repudiated? I was fascinated.
1: Specifically, um, this particular reformist thinker, and I think some others too, they had argued over which Weberian classification of state Iran could be said to be, whether it was a patrimonial state or a sultanistic one. And um, this philosopher was forced to say on camera that it was wrong to put Iran in any of those categories because this was a religious state which was not accounted
0: for in favour. <laughs> uh, down at number
4: two, please. Hi, um, I had a two-part question. You've talked a, a lot about uh, democratisation in Iran and the, theocratic rule and how the two um, conflict with one another. Do you think the two can coexist? And if so, is there a precedent for that? Um, the second part of the question was: I spent a lot of time studying in Turkey, and in the late 20th century, they tried to democratize the country and kind of let go of that religious rule. And recently, with the rise of Erdogan, we're seeing how religion is creeping in as a way of kind of controlling the government and the population. Do you think that a population where there is a majority of one religion, in Muslim in that case, do you think theocracy can ever completely escape from the judicial and governmental
0: system? About question
1: um, complex. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the the very question of whether this theocratic structure of state, Valdi Faih, in the case of Iran, can coexist with um, with democratic rule. that is that's been the struggle of these people's lives. And most of the people who are identified as reformists, um, at least in name, they are arguing for, that coexistence. They're basically saying you can have your theocratic structure, but we can reduce its role in a sense, and increase the role of the people to a degree where almost like a constitutional monarchy. Um, That hasn't gone over well with the people who truly believe in Velayi Fahi, and I think you can understand why. Um, I think for those who who hold that this really is the form their government should take, it's not acceptable to reduce the authority of the religious forces. So, um, I don't know, you know, I think, in a way, my my view of this doesn't really much matter. What matters is how they work this out in Iran. Um, The fact is that the constitution that they have strongly favors the theocratic forces um, because ultimately they hold um, veto power.
0: What's the... um what is the mechanism to change the constitution? Is there a referendum?
1: They can try to... Uh, they tried to do it through parliament, actually, when Khatami was president, and that failed, predictably. Um, yeah, they would have to amend the constitution, probably. Um, or else, ex- I think there was an expectation early on in the reform years that just a sort of... Um, a conversation among equals of goodwill could ultimately you know lead to some kind of compromise. and. That turned out to be a strongly misguided assumption. The, the watchword of the reform movement at the beginning of its main, um, of its main uh, theorist, he, the guy who actually was forced to renounce paper, was um, pressure from below negotiation at the top. And the negotiation at the top was really where it all broke down.
0: And the second part of the question? Do you
1: think? The second part of the question was, uh, um, I'm sorry, you referenced Turkey and the question was. So, could you just repeat it very briefly?
4: Yeah. So, in, in a country where there is majority one religion, do you yeah. think there can ever be a government and a constitution that doesn't render it with significant power?
1: Mm. I think that we probably have some examples of that. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think it is necessarily the case that it should be institutional. That it would be institutionalized. That that one religion would have excessive power. On the other hand, you know, one thing that even the reformists always argue for, and that is certainly the case in my country, is that um, where you have that strong majority religion, people bring that faith to holding public office and that becomes a part of the political discourse even if it's not institutionalised there.
0: We have um, only about... Thank you very much for your questions. We only have four minutes, so um, we're going to see how far we get. So make your question brief and, and Laura will also make her response brief. Up to number one. Hello, good afternoon. Thanks for your time. How much does the pre-Islamic past of Iran, which is the Persian Empire, uh, play a role in influencing the mindsets and behaviors and the foreign policy of the middle classes of Iran? And do you think the uh, historical rivalries and the sectarian rivalries of Arab versus Persian Empire and the... Shiite versus Sunnis play a role in the lives of middle-class Iranians just like me and probably you. Thank you. Can you answer that? Like,
1: so or, so or, so or, it's know, complicated. I mean, I think you can't tease these things apart, right? This is one culture and it includes pre-Islamic and Islamic influences. It includes um, it includes those historic rivalries and that historic sense of identity. And I, I think yes, that is a, thats that's Unavoidably, when you visit Iran, you feel very strongly that these are parts of the culture and they're parts of people's daily lives. Um, to take them totally apart and to say, you know, this influence is, is legitimate and this one isn't, you couldn't do that. It's all interwoven. And, um, and that's one of the, of the great charms and beauty of the country.
0: OK, we will, I think maybe only have one more question. We'll see how we go. So, gentleman number two. All
4: right, thank you for that. Um, Okay, so I guess looking at country building, uh, events are really what shape a nation. Um, When it comes to the 50s and Mossadegh being overthrown by the CIA, when it comes to the 70s and 80s where you've had revolution and, you know, the overthrow of the monarchy at that time, through the more recent descent, do you think the intergenerational um, change is probably the only thing that's going to actually cause change in Iran? Because at the moment, you know, if you've had hundreds of thousands of people, you know, die, for example, in the uh, Iran-Iraq war. Is it things like that which are holding um, progress away from more traditional aspects of Iran?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. That's something I meant to get to in answering a previous question and somehow didn't get there. Um, Yeah, there's a huge generational shift that's taken place in Iran and that can't help but shape the future. Um, You have... I think the the post-revolutionary generations must now be reaching a majority. I mean, there's not... um, That pre-revolutionary generation whose defining experience was the revolution can't hold power forever. And as these people who have grown up under the Islamic Republic and whose primary motive is to improve life as they know it within that system are going to be, just by the force of, um, of time replacing um, their elders in positions of power. The question is really, I mean, there are, there still will be um, people who, I mean, Ahmadinejad was a young man who really had a mindset that came out of 1979. I mean, he was not, um, you know, the age of, of Rafsanjani, but he was somebody who... You could, pretty, you could hear at the echo of the rhetoric of the very early days of the revolution. So it's not only older people who share one mindset and younger people share another, um, but I think that it would be hard not to be hopeful for the future of a country that has such a sort of dynamic younger generation moving through.
0: So I only have 20 seconds, and that's certainly not enough for another question. I do apologise. If you had a question, like I said, four or five copies of the book, and you can uh, you can answer the, ask the question. When Laura will be signing this book, Children of Paradise: The Struggle for the Soul of Iran. I want you to put your hands together and thank her. Yeah.
2: If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.